Welcome to episode 487 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that don't reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, family, or even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, we've got a great set of lawyers for us. Kristen Flynn Goodwin, formerly general manager and associate GC at Microsoft, now the founder of Advancing Cyber. Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow at the National Security Institute, and Jim Dempsey, who's a senior policy advisor at Stanford and a lecturer in law at UC Berkeley. Uh, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for the program. Uh, let's start with some uh, cyber war stories. Matthew, Russia took down the Ukraine's main mobile telecom provider, Kivastar, and just took it down really hard for about a week. And I guess that raises questions about how seriously do we need to take cyber war after that kind of really bumpy attack? Well, I think we do need to take it seriously. So yeah, the Russians took down Kivastar, serves about 24 million people. And what surprised me about this, Stuart, was that we haven't seen a major cyber attack like this sooner uh, in a conflict that's coming on two years old. And it is important for everyone to be thinking about this because it is just now part, and the Russians have made it part of the standard playbook of a, of a conflict. You know, if you can disrupt a mobile system operator, why wouldn't you if you are at war with another country? I think the other interesting thing about the attack, too, is this wasn't a government-run utility. This is a private company that's providing mobile services, but that just tells you that any company that's providing this kind of infrastructure support, so whether you're a, an ISP or a mobile phone operator, I would assume that you've got a target on your back if your country's at war with another country. Yeah, that uh, sounds right. I was actually more impressed by how fast the Ukrainians got their network up. I mean, apparently this was just a total destruction of the existing infrastructure. And to get it back in a week while the other two networks are still working means that it was really annoying. But, you know, a weapon of mass annoyance is not really impressive as a cyber weapon. And so this means that we all should be thinking about what would happen if we were in a conflict, because for sure they could take down our systems. But I do think that Ukraine got lucky. Maybe if all of them had been taken down, there would have been fewer resources to get them back up. But that, I think, illustrates part of the problem of what the Russian strategy has been here. As soon as they have something, they use it. And it's not enough to be a serious blow, but it's enough to warn everybody that it could happen again. Yeah. And that, you know, it comes up in the news story where they they were asking the head of Ukraine cyber defenses, you know, why did they do this on December 12th? Because it wasn't coordinated with a big drone attack. It wasn't coordinated with an air raid. It wasn't really coordinated with anything. And so the head of their cyber defenses, a guy named Ilya Vituk, said, well, maybe some colonel wants to be a general. Um, <laughs> yes, now, right. and, and that's great, uh, which does sound about right. Somebody just says, this this will be good for me if I do it now, so let's do it now. Yeah. Right, right. It felt like uh, the, the whoever it was saw the opportunity and took it. I think it's also interesting, though, Stuart, the point you made, which is they were able to come back in a week. And so I wonder, as 
Obviously, you don't want the attack to take down your system, but I think the next order question is, how quickly can you get your system back up? If yeah. you can be completely eviscerated and then come back within a short amount of time, how devastating is that attack? And it also makes me believe that I'm sure Kyivstar had anticipated this at some level that they were able to come back in a week from such a devastating blow. Yeah. I Look, there, there are going to be so many cyber resilience startups in Ukraine providing global services coming off this war. Uh, that's the only good news that I see. I agree. All right. So the other cyber war story is an indication that a so-called cyber activist group based in Ukraine, so people believe, has attacked an Iranian uh, medical software company saying, hey, you stuck your nose in where you don't belong. And so this is what you should expect. It feels like an effort to respond to the drone attacks that Iran is making possible by hacking what appears to be a random target in Iran. Yeah. And that's the interesting part of the story is the folks that are thinking about these things said it very much appeared like an attack of convenience. So there's this company called Rakisoft, which is an Iranian company that, is, as Stuart mentioned, specializes in medical software. Even on that basis, there's not obviously an immediate connection between that entity and the Iranian government's private entity. There's no connection between it and manufacturers of drones. That said, when you've got a bunch of cyber activists that are self-appointed and are looking to make a mark and looking for easy targets, I think anyone that's around is, you know, a potential victim of, of what they're going to do. And that's what happened here. I mean, this this group that apparently did this is known as Nebula, which is sort of a small group. It's, you know, the main actor that's been on the cyber front for Ukraine has been the IT army of Ukraine, which they said is almost like an appendage of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian offensive cyber uh, command. But this group is clearly sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause. It may, in fact, be Ukrainian. And they took an opportunity. And, and, and so similar to that ambitious Russian colonel, you know, saw an opportunity to take down Kievstar. We see another group taking down an Iranian company, which I just think, again, it's a reminder that when these conflicts arise between states, the number of act there's no monopoly on the use of force. You know, they talk about that's one of the earmarks of sort of civilization and governments and police forces, a monopoly on the use of force. There's no monopoly on the use of cyber offensive means. And so you've got a, many random actors doing things to other random entities just because they may be a corporation in, in one state or another. Yep. So that raises the question, uh, Jim, that I wanted to ask you. What does this mean for getting insurance against these kinds of attacks? Uh, we've had a lot of legal developments there. Well, we have, Stuart. At the beginning of this month, right after New Year's Day, Merck, pharmaceutical giant, and its insurance companies settled a long-running case growing out of the NotPetya attack of 2017. NotPetya, remember, was an early uh, supply chain attack uh, the attackers there, who were ultimately identified as being associated with the Russian government, had gained access to the source code and the software update distribution infrastructure of a company that made a particular piece of software for invoicing and taxes. 
This malware was uh, released. It propagated rapidly. 40,000 computers at Merck alone were hit. And the company said that it had suffered losses of $1.4 billion. The company had insurance, and it had all risks insurance, which is a very broad form of coverage, which had a specific clause in it covering cyber attacks. But it also had, the insurance policy also had, as almost every insurance policy in the world does, a hostile or warlike acts exclusion. And so the insurance companies refused to pay. And they said this was state-sponsored or state-affiliated, and this was covered. The insurance companies lost. They lost at the trial court level on a motion, preliminary motion. They lost at the appellate division level. Ultimately, they settled for an undisclosed amount. Just just before our argument in the Supreme Court, if I remember I think right. like minutes before. I think they showed up at the <laughs> yeah. court and said, OK, judges, we've now got a settlement. You know, it, in a way, there's a lagging indicator at play here. Notpedia was 2017. Soon after that, the insurance companies began rewriting their policies. It's interesting, in fact, that the trial court in this case almost invited them to do so. The trial court said, look, um, hostile or warlike action exclusions have been around for literally centuries. And the parties here, including the insurance companies, knew that cyber attacks of various forms, sometimes sponsored by governments, were becoming more common. And yet, despite this, they did not do anything to clarify their policy and that no court had ever applied a hostile or warlike acts exclusion to this particular type of attack. The appellate court specifically said this was a a cyber attack on a non-combatant firm that provided accounting software updates to non-combatant consumers all wholly outside the context of any armed conflict or military objective. But I think the trial court basically said, look, insurance companies, you can always rewrite your contracts. And most insurance policies last one year. And so the long sense, again, the, the, this policy was probably written in 2016. Long sense, the companies have rewritten their policies. The Lloyd's uh, market has uh, issued standard clauses that cover now war or cyber operations. So, you know, Stuart, I'd I'd be curious to know your thoughts. For years and years and years and years, people talked about how insurance could drive better cybersecurity. And I haven't seen it. And if anything, these cases say to me, we're not going to see it, that the insurance companies will assess their risk and they will write their policies to account for the risk. And they're going to be careful, and they already are, increasingly careful on the exact words of the policies to cover or not cover what they think they can tolerate based upon the premiums they charge. And it's just simply the purest form of risk arbitrage. Yeah. The first meeting I went to, a public meeting in which the idea that the insurance will save us from this problem was noised about was in 1995. Yeah. I think I was at that meeting or others like it. And (laughs) Yeah, I, I just don't see it happening. And, you know, the, again, an insurance policy is a contract. Specifically, courts will interpret them in favor of the insured. And it's just basically a warning and a lesson to the insurance companies. Be 
careful how you draft these things. There are companies, and I've advised one, that have an insurance business that is aligned with a consulting business in which they say, you buy insurance for me and what you're getting in addition to the coverage is, I'm going to come in and tell you what you're doing right and wrong and push you to do it right. This is probably the kind of market where there should be more of that. Absolutely. Okay. But instead, what we're going to get is regulators going out and shooting the wounded. Kristen, is that what happened with the New York Department of Financial Services? They uh, got $8 million from Genesis Global for a bunch of violations of their regs and basically kicked Genesis out of the market because they were pretty much out of the market anyway. Is there more significance to what they did other than saying, Here's somebody who screwed up and he's probably, they're probably bankrupt, but we can squeeze a little something out of them. Yeah. You know, I don't know that the uh, crypto Bitcoin operation is really the the victim here. There are a billion dollars in losses yeah. for their customers. They were investigated by the New York Department of Financial Services. They're also under investigation by the SEC. What really caught me wasn't the laundry list of the financial regulations that were invoked here, you know, Bank Secrecy Act and money laundering and all the badness that happen when somebody is looking to skirt the law from a financial perspective. It was the line at the end that said, and failure to maintain robust cybersecurity measures. Because what we saw when the SEC released their new regulations this summer was that You know, it set a new bar for what publicly traded companies should be thinking about. And then the New York Department of Financial Services released its regulation update on November 1st. And if you have not spent time looking at the detail of that, boy, you should, because it is the specifics of, like, if if you were the SEC and you had the ability to actually, like, grow teeth, this is what you would have wanted. And so it is the regulator's dream. And it is so proscriptive that when I saw this article and and what really grabbed me is that this is the first case where you're seeing that NYDFS starting to flex its its cybersecurity muscle. And I think that the fact that even in the press release, even in the tweet, NYDFS was calling out and failure to maintain a functional compliance program and talking about cyber, that's a big deal. And when you click down into the regulation, not only does it put significant obligations on the CISO, it puts obligations on the company leadership and on the board to do things like confirm that the company's management has allocated adequate resources to do all of the cybersecurity things that the company says they should be doing. Boy, that's, uh, you know, who knows what's adequate, right? Although I'm sure the CISO will tell you that uh, more would be adequate. (laughs) And they'll be required to report that now to to the board under the regulations. But these guys get so specific in the New York regulation that it's things like specifics around multi-factor authentication or controls for malicious code. It's centralized logging and alerting. I mean, like, like really detailed. So that's where I think companies are going to have to really get into the specifics of NYDFS if you're in that financial services space. And for those of us in cybersecurity, more generally to think about what is that reasonable and prudent cybersecurity standard now as this starts to put pressure on evolving what are the best practices in the space. 
So it's less about, yeah. you know, what does Genesis, a crypto miner, do and, and and why do we care? And it's much more about the fact that NYDFS got a pair of new shoes and they're putting them on to go kick some ass. And that's interesting. Yeah. Well, as we said on the last podcasts, uh, the the best time to kick someone is when they're down. And that is, you know, that's a that's a, a regulatory strategy. You find somebody who isn't getting up and then you force them to sign up to all of the security measures that you think everybody should follow. And then you can go around saying, we've already punished people for failing to live up to these. So you could be next and not clear that everybody will line up because other people may have more resources to fight the regulation. In fact, that's probably what we're going to hear about on HHS and the regulations they're proposing for hospitals. But it shows the ambitions of the regulators here. And my guess is that uh, it's going to be hard for people to say, no, none of that was necessary. It, um, it may be that NYDFS uh, becomes a de facto standard. Well, what else is really fascinating about it, Stuart, is that when you want to see a really interesting law being made in the United States, you got to look to the states because it's not happening at the federal level. You might see something interesting happening in Europe. You're definitely yeah. going to see it in China. But, you know, if you want to see actual law happening, it's going to happen at the state level. And so that's where NYDFS is interesting. So, yeah, I think de facto standard is a real possibility. So the feds are saying they're leaking that they intend to do to actually regulate more on cybersecurity in the health sector and for hospitals. And Jim, it was just a leak saying, hey, regulations are coming, but it does sound as though regulations are coming. Well, yes, Stuart, I think it, 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 they are. This is part of a, a long trend or at least a trend ever since Colonial Pipeline in 2021 which I think brought about a sea change in the approach to critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, and a move away from the public-private partnership that had dominated a policy for decades to a more regulatory approach, guide, uh, binding rules, not guidelines, binding rules for pipelines, binding rules for railroads, binding rules for the aviation sector, all adopted under existing authorities which didn't necessarily mention cybersecurity, but which talk about safety and reliability of these infrastructures. The administration tried something similar with water, drinking water, and was forced to withdraw that. You talked about that on an earlier episode. Now, what's happening in healthcare is in December, the HHS issued a healthcare sector cybersecurity strategy document, relatively short relatively cryptic, but it had two things in it that I think are highly consequential. One, it said that HHS, Office of Civil Rights, will begin an update to the HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, security rule, which is decades old and is clearly outdated. And they said that they will begin an update to that rule in the spring of 2024 to include new cybersecurity requirements. Secondly, this document in, from December says that CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, will propose new cybersecurity requirements for hospitals. Now, hospitals that take Medicare and Medicaid are already subject to about two dozen regulatory frameworks so-called conditions of participation. 
And I actually think the government has a pretty strong standing here, Stuart. They're basically saying, if you want Medicare and Medicaid money, and almost every hospital and healthcare provider in the country does, they, that's how they survive, that's how our healthcare system works. If you take federal money, you must meet certain standards. And there's one on physical building of hospitals. The, in a hospital, the window ledge must be no more than a certain number of inches above the floor so that a patient can climb out of the window in the case of a fire. And there's a condition of participation on uh, dietitians and dietary standards at hospitals. There's a condition of participation actually on record keeping, but it actually doesn't say anything about cyber records. And I've argued for some time now that CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, can use this authority and should use this authority to address another critical threat to the quality of care and availability and reliability of care provided at federally funded health care centers. So that seems obvious. That, you know, there's lots of ways in which bad security could lead to either financial draining or, or serious harm to patients. The hospitals are screaming bloody murder. Do you think they have the ability to stop this? I don't know what theory they would use. Well, again, this one to me, I mean, the Supreme Court is considering arguments tomorrow on the whole, implicating the whole structure of the regulatory state. You have the West Virginia EPA case out there and the major question doctrine. And But yeah. but remember, the um, I think it was the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. The vaccine mandate for healthcare workers was upheld under precisely the same doctrine by the Supreme Court, right? That case went up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that sounds right. Saying that, you know, okay, if you want to take federal money, if you want to have a functioning healthcare system, you're going to have to comply with certain things and you're going to have to have mandatory vaccinations for your employees. And I think you should have some mandatory requirements, multi-factor authentication, some of the other basics for your record system and for your o- your OT as well as your IT, you know, every hospital, every piece of equipment in, in a hospital nowadays is networked in some way, has some software functionality to it and a connected feature to it. So I think it's coming. I think it's appropriate. We'll see, you know, how onerous they are. Yeah, but industry, they'll complain. They may even try to sue. Well, they are feeling deeply poor, and this adds to their costs. So maybe they're going to scream bloody murder and then ask for money. Yeah. So uh, that strikes me as the most likely. But, you know, we have now twice mentioned multi-factor authentication. And I'm sure that Gary Gensler at the SEC, if he listens to this, has been uh, wincing every time it came up. <laughs> because, well, Kristen, tell us, why should the SEC be wincing? Uh, they have said multi-factor authentication is something that the people they regulate need to do. Yeah, you know, my doctor says diet and exercise matters too, right? But uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Right? January 9th, the, uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't call it X, but the Twitter account of the SEC was hacked because... A hacker was able to find the phone number that was used by Twitter, by the SEC when they set up their Twitter account. And they were able to get control of the account and then make a tweet that said that the Bitcoin exchange traded fund was now publicly available before it actually was. That caused the market to move based on information that wasn't accurate. And all because that account did not have multi-factor authentication enabled on it. Now, we know that Twitter changed its policy for 
phone-based MFA back in, in 2020, and it was in, in March or, or April, right? So that if you wanted to keep phone-based authentication, you had to pay for it. So maybe Mr. Gensler had chosen not to pay that bill. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Login.gov, you know, there's plenty of authentication apps that work quite well that many of us use in order to keep those accounts secure. And it was clear that the SEC was not following its basic guidance on multi-factor authentication for one of its most public and most obvious accounts. So, yeah, the, S the SEC has never been good at cybersecurity. They've never really been that good about uh, do using computers. Uh, so this is not really a surprise, but it's so deeply embarrassing. I hope so. I mean, I, I hope so. Right. Because when when regulators are setting the baseline for how we should be living, it's really important to follow through on these things. And when you look at the the report that came out not that long ago, it was back in September from the deputy inspector general and the office of the inspector general talking about how the SEC is doing. You know, it, it highlights that the SEC is making progress on zero trust, but the SEC was not at 100% on MSA. There's still room for improvement. And some of the zero trust framework goals were pretty low. So, yeah. you know, like it's, it's great that, that they now have a zero trust strategy implementation lead. Like that's awesome, but there's a lot of opportunity to exceed. And when you're setting baselines and setting standards for the industry, it's really important to be a leader and, and live the life. And so hopefully we'll start to see the SEC really driving on multi-factor authentication as, at a minimum. I, I thought it was sort of interesting to see that Mr. Gensler himself had to personally tweet that the SEC's account had been compromised and all that. Yeah. So as you may know, I um, occasionally comment in cartoon form on uh, cyber issues something called Cybertoons. And the, the Cybertoons that I've, I just had to do over the weekend had Gary Gensler at a press conference saying, yes, it was our fault. So we didn't have multi-factor authentication. And yes, the FTC has called me. And yes, I've signed up to their consent decree. <laughs> but I'll be damned if I'm going to pay a whistleblower award to Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. All right. So speaking of the FTC, which ought to be feeling pretty good because they haven't screwed up this way. Uh, they've been doing two or three things, especially on geolocation recently, Jim. And I wondered if you could kind of summarize where that stands. Yeah, well, as we know, the FTC has had a emphasis on data brokers. And I think they found that location data in particular provided a, a good target for their efforts. And they've been going after several companies that exist in this sort of shadow ecosystem. These are not consumer-facing companies, but they are companies that may in fact be on your cell phone through their software development uh, toolkit or otherwise. Uh, companies you never heard of collecting literally billions of data points a day off of mobile phones. And recently, on January 9, the FTC announced a, a settlement with a company called Xmode Social and its successor, OutLogic, in connection with their collection and sale 
of location information. And what's, I think, interesting here is, as their sort of avenue into this issue, the FTC has defined this new term, which at some level they made up out of whole cloth, sensitive locations. So I think they felt that they maybe could not talk broadly about all location data. And it's interesting that if people had focused just on people going into stores, maybe that the case would not have been there. But the FTC defined this category of sensitive locations, locations within the United States associated with medical facilities, including family planning centers, general medical and surgical, mental health, substance abuse, outpatient care, psychiatrics and substance abuse, religious organizations, correctional facilities, labor union offices, locations of entities held out to the public as predominantly providing education or child care services to minors, overlapping with the longstanding yep. focus on kids' privacy, associations held out to the public as predominantly providing services based on racial or ethnic origin, and locations held out to the public as providing temporary shelter or social services to homeless survivors of domestic violence, refugees, or immigrants. So these are the sensitive locations. And basically what the FTC required these settling companies to do, it's very fascinating, is to set up a an index, a list of sensitive locations. Of, of all those places, and then just, and then just scrub all that data and out. And to scrub all that data out. Now also, of course, as the FTC does in many of its settlements now, it forced a disgorgement of data previously collected by the company. So they had to completely wipe out everything. They could start again tomorrow, I guess, a billion data points a day. They said they, they, said they were going to, I uh, think. Data, <laughs> a billion data points a day and then scrub out this sensitive location. I've always been a little bit worried about a company that specifically creates a database of sensitive yes. <laughs> locations. It's not like they're not, it's not like the data isn't flowing in. The data is still flowing in. They just can't resell it or share it with partners. Meanwhile, the FTC has another case pending against a second company in this space called Kachova. Xlogic, the company that settled Xmode, I'm sorry, Xmode and Outlogic touted itself as the second largest data broker of location information. Kachova advertises itself as the largest. The FTC filed a complaint against them, again, focused a lot on this question of sensitive data. Last year, a district court judge threw out the complaint, said it wasn't specific enough in terms of harm. The FTC pretty quickly filed a longer and more extensive complaint. We'll see what happens there. But no doubt, sensitive location information is, is a theme. And I think the FTC is going to continue to pound this one. So Outlogic settled and said, hey, we already have contracts that tell people they have to do all these things. And so we're just going to tell them again, I think. And so we don't have to change anything about the way we handle data. But with the scrubbing. Uh, it was weird. Yeah. They have to scrub before it's, it leaves there. Right. They have right. to scrub but, but before. They, we're not going to change any of our policies. Right. So they seem to have kind of, and the FTC didn't, didn't say, well, that's crazy. You can't do that. So it's weird. I think both FTC and Outlogic sort of agreed that they want Kachava to, to bear the burden of this. Uh, and Kachava is fighting it hard. That's why they managed to get this bounced once in court, which is not easy against the FTC. And so I think there's going to be a long, hard battle. And it will be a little tricky for the FTC because they're saying, well, there are these sensitive locations 
And it is deceptive or unfair to keep records about people who go to those locations. And that's not going to be immediately obvious to every federal judge that they appear before. Yeah, I mean, I think they have leaned heavily on their unfairness prong. There's also some deception here where people tried to opt out or thought they were opting out and right. didn't opt out. But yeah, no, Kachova could be the lab MD of 2024, 2025. Yeah, they're clearly going to go for that. So, uh, and, you know, the FTC under Linacon has a nearly pristine record of overreaching and getting swatted down. But they've won enough that they probably feel, well, you know, if we win one out of 10 or one out of five, we've made a lot of law and that's what we're going to do. All right. They also went after Rite Aid and we covered that last time. But I thought, Jim, if you've got some thoughts on the the Rite Aid case, that was the facial recognition and it was not the world's best facial recognition tool. It was designed to catch repeat shoplifters, which God knows is a big problem. But the uh, the FTC just tap danced on Rite Aid, which was broke, a, and got them to sign up to a pretty demanding set of requirements. Uh, That's right. I was not particularly thrilled. I thought that the uh, the FTC, if they had been up in private business, would have been cited for unfair and deceptive advertising about Rite Aid's program. Not that I love Rite Aid's program, but the statements they made. It was a terrible program, Stuart. I mean, it was a terrible program. They uploaded knowingly extremely poor quality images. And then when they had one image in the database, which produced, I think, a thousand hits over a five week period at 130 different stores ranging from New York. One image. <laughs> right. They should have known. They did know. And they failed to respond. Employees complained about the fact that they were getting all of these false, false positives. Yeah. But I think, Stuart, one, there's two ways to look at the case. One is you can look at it as a facial recognition case. And it mm-hmm. is that. And it's a biometric case. And a lot of what the order talks about goes to implementation of a biometric matching program and how you must do that. But I think it's also an AI case. And the FTC called out in its press release and uh, in a subsequent blog, I think that the staff did on the case, that this was AI-based facial recognition, which a lot of facial recognition is. And Well, it all is in the machine learning sense. Exactly. And Alvaro Bedoya, FTC commissioner, said in his statement accompanying the settlement, he said that this order and the steps that the company is required to take constitute the baseline for what a comprehensive algorithmic fairness program should look like. So he didn't say what a biometric matching program should look like, but he expanded it beyond just biometric identity to all algorithmic fairness. So I think people, even if they're not doing facial recognition, need to look at that. And again, as you say, it's the classic FTC case where they find somebody that they can pile pages after pages of requirements on, and then they're able to say to everybody else, hey, this is our understanding of what is the baseline for an algorithmic fairness program. 
And with facial recognition, you can tell whether it works or not. And mostly now it does work. And certainly there are programs that don't have any of the problems that we've talked about in the context of Rite Aid. And so this is the FTC, not just picking somebody who's down, but picking an entire industry that's been trashed by the press for 10 years and piling on unfairly, in my view, to make a legal standard that is basically going to say, if you use an algorithm, we're going to require that you meet our racial quotas, our ethnic quotas, our sex quotas, gender Stuart, quotas, so, age you, you've quotas, been, you've and been disability. This, you've been banging this quota yes. drum. I, I just don't. I just don't see it. Um, well, how else do you decide whether it's fair or not if it has a disproportionate impact on any of those categories well, if, or a combination of those categories, according to uh, Badoya? You're, you're, there was so much going on in this case that had little, if anything, to do with race. There was race in the in the background here, undoubtedly. But I think, Stuart, I look. I think the the bigger point here is you you can bang that drum about, about AI imposed quotas all you want, but I want everybody listening to realize that what the FTC did was they took a facial recognition case and they morphed and turned it, it into an AI exactly. case. Yes, because. Facial recognition was the AI that was least popular. But meanwhile, they've laid out a pretty comprehensive set of controls for AI. Yes, I do not think that, well, I'm not sure whether that will stand up when it goes up against somebody like Kachava that wants to fight about it. But I am just astonished at the idea that we would say we're going to require our AI to meet standards for combinations. This is intersectionality on steroids to say, no, I need you to show me that this is not unfair to disabled women of color. But it was, uh, unfair, it, it, it was unfair to everybody, Stuart. That was the point. Well, it here. was, but that's not what he's saying. Now he's saying, and actually it, was, it wasn't clear how unfair it was. They told a lot of stories, but actually the data they had does not seem to have said that this was unfair to uh, minorities in application. Instead, they said it was unfair because it was applied more often in minority neighborhoods. And they didn't even say, yeah, black people actually were singled out more often than white people or Hispanics. I'm not sure they even found that. It's typical of the FTC when they get into this race stuff that they do a crappy yeah, but, but job. Here's, here's a company that deployed the technology in predominantly stores that had predominantly minority populations, so the stores served. I think they would have been on stronger ground if they had been able to justify it on the basis of deploying it in stores that are particularly susceptible to shoplifting. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was overlap. Well, well, I don't know. I mean, here in San Francisco, which is not a, um, yeah. I mean, we have That's a true. terrible, terrible shoplifting problem and we have a relatively okay. low yep. population. All right. So there we go. Now we have the debate. This will go on for a long time, but the FTC is determined to make some law here. And my guess is there'll be a fight over this sooner or later. The other campaign of toxification is to say AI is bad because it's going to enable people to do a really bang up job of harassing folks. And Kristen, there was an article that's typical of that in the New York Times talking about attacks on uh, people using AI. I guess the AI engine they were most upset about is one that uh, allows you to imagine what people will look like if they aren't wearing any clothes. Indeed. Stuart Thompson wrote a really fascinating piece in the New York Times about that 
called Dark Corners of the Web offer a glimpse at AI's nefarious future. You know, used to tell people if you if you want to get over your fright of uh, speaking in public, picture everybody naked. The practical reality of that is now much more horrifying. than (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. At last, I'm going to take up my public speaking career again. (laughs) Absolutely horrifying. And and, and the the reality of of what trolls can do is, is laid out in the article. It talks about an expert that was brought into a Louisiana parole board hearing to provide testimony about a uh, convicted murderer who was up for release and some hackers grabbed screenshots of the expert and then put her through an AI denudification process and then released that on 4chan and harassed her for it. And that's just you know, one of myriad examples. The famous actress Emma Watson, also known to most people as Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter series, you know, also subjected to things like that. And so as you think about how can your likeness then be rendered onto somebody else's body or go through this denudification, is that a, a violation of your personal rights and your image? And it's interesting, right? Because when you start to click down into how are governments dealing with this, you know, you've got, you've got the China approach where it's mandatory disclosure of deep fakes and it's been regulated since 2019, not surprisingly. And you've got Canada and the UK and to some extent the US still exploring at the national level, what are we gonna do? Obviously we all saw the AI executive order here in the US asking for deep fakes to be labeled if they were going to cause harm to the public interest. I think the, the really interesting space is the EU, right? Because with the EU's AI Act that finally got settled out, I think that's where we're going to see some real regulation in the space. And while I think implementation is 2026, it's going to be a a, a slow-moving glacier that comes at us, that'll require deep fake labeling and labeling for AI-generated content and obligations on those who develop AI so that this content is detected and known, which which would be challenging. And the biggest fines, I, I, you know, it's like funny. You watch the, the EU and every time there's a new legal regime, they come up with a way to have fines that are a little bit higher, right? So first we had GDPR, then we had NIS. Now the fines for yep. the AI Act are up to 7% of the firm's global sales turnover, depending upon size and offense. And so 7% is enough to get somebody's attention. So, you know, we'll see how the EU wants to become the, the baseline of enforcement. States are taking this on. I think there's, there have been a number of states that have had different laws addressing pornography or this type of abuse, but not the national level. It is something that, that you know, in typical U.S. form, I don't think we're going to have a national approach to dealing with the problem. Well, and a good thing, too, this story just made me grumpy. Any story that cites the Center for Countering Digital Hate, to my mind, is the equivalent of quoting the Southern Poverty Law Center. They're both smear machines designed to achieve particular partisan goals, but who they smear. And to say, oh, we're writing a story to discover that there are bad people on 4chan is not a story at all. What possible solution, regulatory in particular, do we have in mind? Would this woman who was undressed digitally feel better if the undressing was labeled as a fake image? Or should we regulate every Photoshop capability that could 
put one person's face on a nude body. It just feels like uh, people are in the middle of a moral panic looking for witches and the Center for Countering Digital Hate has found a few witches that they think ought to be sacrificed. I don't know. You know, you might feel differently if that were your own kids who's, you know, or 18 you know, I, for being put out there. I would also feel that way about swatting. It's a bad thing. I don't like it. But I don't think that I'm going to find some company that needs to be responsible for stopping swatting. That's not going to work that way. Right. I don't think it's a company thing, but it does beg the call for, are, are, is this something that should be regulated ab initio? Is it something we should be talking well, about? But what This would basically be something that says, if you've got an image generating or an image modifying or an image editing capability with AI, you have to find a way to make sure that it doesn't show people nude. But of course, it's okay if they show them in bathing suits. It just, this sounds like a demand for an enormous amount of intrusion by these AI companies into what people are doing with their technology for a payoff that isn't going to work anyway, because it'll be easy to come up with AI engines that are not, you know, they're open source and do the same thing. I think Illinois got a law that they, they passed not that long ago that said that it was unlawful to create pornographic content without the consent of the person whose image was being used. Yeah, if they want to prosecute people from 4chan who do this for kicks, that's not an unreasonable thing to do. But saying we, we want to make sure that we have regulated everybody in America because there's bad people on 4chan strikes me as peculiar at, at the least. I don't think it's, I, I think 4chan is the extreme space. What I think is interesting is to see states starting to move about banning deep face for elections. You see the Federal Election Commission coming in to talk about deep face. That's the more interesting conversation. Yeah. And then, but it's another moral panic. We just went through an election, which the Chinese Communist Party was absolutely determined had to come out one way. And they had all of the capabilities that the Chinese state has for doing deep fakes. And they got their butt handed to them in Taiwan. And as far as I can see, Sure, there were efforts to influence that, but they were not very strong and they were not very effective. And so why are we saying, oh, my God, deep fakes are going to change 2024? You know, I want to see some actual evidence before I rush out and say we need to regulate AI's uh, capabilities. Maybe I'm grumpy because when I tried to do this cartoon and I wanted Gary Gensler in it, I said, I want a picture of Gary Gensler addressing a press conference. And the uh, AI engine, I think it was Microsoft's, said, oh, we can't do that. Oh, that's shocking. You know, you violated our terms of service. I, so it's just we're going to get nutty responses like Microsoft's to a Gary Gensler cartoon request. And I think we lose a lot and gain very little from this panic. I don't know. I think people do have a right to their name and image and likeness. You see that even coming from kids in sports and, and challenge. I'm sorry, Gary Gensler does not have a right to, to be cartoon free, especially after his performance last week. What you got back looked a lot like Telly Savalas. Maybe he did. Who knows? But the, the broader point about is there the public's right to know about whether they're being fed content that is authentic or being Creating. Yeah, fair enough. If there were an easy way to then identify content produced by AI, I'd say 
It would be nice to label it from everything I've seen. You can label it, uh, but it's going to get stripped out almost as trivially as it was added. So I'm not sure that is going to actually do much good. Well, see, because the Europeans are going to want to regulate the heck out of that. And you know there will be test yep. cases as they try to enforce that. And they will go after American companies first because that's where they'll want to set the example. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I, luckily for them, none of them would be recognizable in the Cybertoons cartoon. <laughs> All right. Here's one I wanted to talk about because I thought it was interesting uh, for AI. Uh, Anthropic has a paper out saying that AI models can be trained to deceive, which is not really a surprise, but that it's hard to untrain them. And the burden of this paper was to say, if you, let's say, wanted to insert malware into a code written by your AI engine, but only on, under certain circumstances, and they said, if we tell it it's 2023, it will write good code. And if we tell it it's 2024, it will write bad code. So you can imagine that somebody could have done that in 2023, and it would not have become immediately obvious that that was happening. And then they said, now, how can we train these machines not to do that? Can we put them through a variety of human reinforced learning to be good and humane and tell the truth? And turns out, yeah, you can tell them that, but that doesn't change their instructions to always put malware in when it's 2024. And they walked through all of the efforts to pull that evil instruction out of the model. And what they found is even when they started focusing on when they knew that it was supposed to write bad code in 2024, they could train it not to write bad code if they caught it. But all that did was reinforce the hidden behavior that they hadn't caught yet. So if you're thinking, how will we prevent people from writing prompts that will produce the wrong result? It sounds as though it's almost impossible, based on what we know right now, to say, well, we'll run it through a bunch of really strict reinforcement learning in order to make sure that it's actually doing the right thing. And what you'll discover is it will do the right thing every time you caught it doing the wrong thing and corrected it. But if you haven't thought of all the ways in which the malware has been triggered, you're not going to get it out. Now, it calls that deception. I think that's probably a little hyped. But it is for people who are worried about truly evil existential risk AI, this is not a very comforting study. Well, it's not a very comforting story, Stuart. It sounds to me not, not very comforting existential issues aside, but for all of the major corporations that are rushing to incorporate AI into all kinds of processes, I just think those companies are taking on forms of risk that they barely understand. And it's this, I think what I, my takeaway from this study is forms of risk that are very, very hard to yeah, uh, because people will do this. Certainly yeah. nation states will do this, uh, are doing it already. So, yes, it is truly troubling as a vista for what AI will do for us. But I think, you know, for those of us who think that it's worth worrying about existential risk, the idea that a really serious malware could be built in there or survive because nobody knew it was there is it's it's pretty troubling. Okay, Matthew, this is kind of a cyber story uh, because it, it involves pig butchering, which is, you know, having usually young women uh, seducing people online and persuading them to send all of their savings to some scam site. Apparently, 
that's been going on. We've talked about this briefly and not enough in Myanmar and has been happening at industrial scale where women are being attracted mainly from from China on the pretense of giving them a really good job in uh, Southeast Asia. And then they end up stuck in these call centers. And if they don't perform in the call centers, they end up in someplace much worse. And what I was struck by is apparently this is really has gotten so serious that there is an insurgent movement against the Myanmar government that took over a piece of territory the size of Lebanon and then said to the Chinese government, you should support us because we're doing the right thing and ending this pig butchering. Yeah, it's a fascinating story in the sense that clearly the the government of Myanmar isn't able to stop this activity and that and the rebel group accuses the government of actually being involved in the activity. Yes, it's sort of unable or unwilling. Right. And and they say, oh, the helicopters flew the bad guys away that were involved in this. And the government said, oh, we need to get control over this region because they want to curry favor with China. And now the rebel group is saying, no, we are in control of this area and we're going to get rid of this because they want to curry favor with China. So it's a everyone's trying to be China's best friend. And to your point, Stuart, about, you know, people coming across the border, according to the the report, it says that 41,000 people involved in the telecoms fraud in Myanmar were handed over to Chinese authorities last year. So, yeah, it definitely is on steroids. We're talking about masses and masses of people that cross the border on the promise of good jobs or whatever it may be. And it's clearly a sore point between Myanmar and China. And this rebel group is taking advantage of the government's either abetting it, abiding it, or being unable to stamp it out. There's always been an insurgency up there that has been a problem for the Burma government and then the Myanmar government. But the way in which it has become a major 21st century crime as well is astonishing. Yeah. Okay. few quick hits and we'll be done. Uh, I want to go back and talk about triangulation. This is the attack on Apple that involved for zero days, uh, which I had described and raised the question, how how could this possibly have been done without Apple knowing that it was happening? And I've gotten some feedback from people who said, well, you know, it is possible. And so I'm going to just for the listeners, if you have the same question I had about how could this possibly be done, here are some of the answers I'm getting from people is that they say, yes, there was a backdoor into a bunch of places where code could be written that were not, um, it was not a feature that was documented. And uh, here someone says, well, it could be there for debugging purposes and could be introduced and kept around for a long time after Apple moves to a more modern chip. And the cryptographic hash signature that seemed to be the smoking gun probably was an error correction code and not necessarily an elaborate hash designed to uh, restrict access to the capabilities that the hidden features allowed. And the fact that there had been a debugging feature in the chip that had been taken out for security purposes and then somehow got back in, that people said, you know, you'd be surprised how often that happens. So I do not have a position on this, but I thought it was interesting and useful for people who've heard this to know that there is still a debate going on in the 
cybersecurity community about whether this is something that Apple should have known about. And there's a rumor going around that it was found because Apple had an open source code release that they had tried to redact and did a bad job of redacting. So there's a complete story about how that might have happened without Apple knowing about it. And I offer that for those who uh, themselves want to do the uh, analysis. I got two more stories to cover, and I think then we'll be done. This is a short one. Huawei has officially and completely stopped all lobbying operations in Washington, D.C., which tells us that their effort to fight the ban on Huawei in the United States has apparently come to an end. That doesn't mean they won't be doing a lot elsewhere, but the lobbying campaign is done. And then we have a story that uh, tells us a little bit more about how Stuxnet got into uh, Iran's centrifuge system. And essentially, the burden of the story is that the Dutch intelligence service was asked to help They helped identify a Dutch employee who was in uh, the Gulf and married to an Iranian woman working with Iran. He is reputed to have carried Stuxnet in, maybe on a water pump, gotten it installed, and then it spread like a worm through the entire Natanz facility. And meanwhile, when the um, attack actually was discovered. Within two weeks, he was already in Dubai. He's in a motorcycle accident and dies. The sources are saying, well, there's nothing suspicious about that. Believe that or not. I don't think it tells us anything much about cybersecurity, but it's the kind of thing that's sort of irresistible to identify the update. And that is the end of episode 487. Thanks to Kristen, Matthew, and Jim for joining us. If you've got questions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, check in next week for episode 488 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. I'll be damned if I'm going to pay a whistleblower award to Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific.